I'm Darshi Harindra and this is Unbiased. In my podcast, I'll be chatting to someone new each session to explore the ways in which bias has affected or continues to affect their day-to-day lives. Joining me today is Robin Hillman Harrigan. Robin is the Racial Justice Research and Program Manager at the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry at the UCLA Graduate School of Information Studies and the Critical Data and AI Equity Advisor at Feminist AI. She's a 2020 Google Rare Leadership Accelerator Fellow and a 2021 Antler Entrepreneur, where she's launching her new company at the intersection of data science and racial justice. Working across the US, Europe, and Australia, Robin has seen the impact that both data and bias have in the community in hiring, strategy, nonprofit decision making, public policy, and popular opinion. A lifelong activist experienced in founding and running a successful nonprofit social enterprise, Robin combines her critical perspective with a qualification in data science, BA in Indigenous history, and a grad dip in education from the University of Melbourne. And to top it all off, Robin is also a prolific writer who's been publishing works for at least the past 15 years. Robin, I'm so thrilled that you've taken the time to chat to me today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Robin, you look so fresh-faced, but all I'm thinking, looking at all the things you've achieved to date, is just how old are you? (laughs) A lady never tells. You don't have to answer that. A lady never tells her age. Good answer. Good answer. Oh, Robin, there is so much we can talk about. Um, And you and I both share a keen interest in the world of data and technology and the potential for bias in technology, but also the great potential that technology has to be a solution to address bias. So I'm really looking forward to exploring some of these with you. But I always like to start at the beginning. And your bio reads like you are a born activist. Tell me more about your early life and where it all began. Yeah, um, I really, um, activism really does go all the way back for me. Um, I grew up in a town in New Jersey called Teaneck, which um, is kind of known um, for being the first town to voluntarily um, integrate after the um, desegregation um, laws were um, passed. Uh, There was a lot of resistance to that but Teaneck really embraced it. And after that, it sort of became a place in the 80s that a lot of people who were, um, you know, in interracial uh, marriages chose to move to. And as a result, you know, my parents did the same thing. So having an African-American father and, you know, a white Jewish mother, um, it, it was definitely the place to be, <laughs> uh, the place to grow up. There were other, yeah. um, you know, mixed interracial families and, you know, there were just all kinds of different like religions and, you know, many, many different ethnic backgrounds, um, in our small town. So it was really unique, um, a very unique and diverse place to grow up. Oh, it sounds it. And did you, um, so did you, f- feel like your community through you know through school and and uh, growing up there was 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 fairly like highly high had a high proportion of of um diverse of kids of diverse backgrounds or were you still sort of just thrown in the mix of that new of a 
what I would see as a typ more typical, you know, New Jersey. Yeah, no, it was, it was very diverse um, in terms of the people at my school, the people in my town. But what, what was interesting was, you know, you know, there was a certain degree of institutionalized racism that took place over the years. So while when I was um, a younger child, my classes were quite, you know, mixed, um, you know, different genders, different races. And then as I got older and I myself was tracked into these sort of gifted and talented track and this advanced math seminar track, and which then led to the honors classes in high school and the advanced placement and sort of college classes that you can take while you're in high school. And it just became actually less and less diverse and, um, actually you know wider and more male um as we were you know placed towards that more um uh, you could say elite track or that sort of um that idea of being you know the, the the smart kids or you know whatever that might be um so it was really really sad and strange to see that although my wider school was quite diverse my classes were becoming less and less diverse uh, as i got older and were, were your parents academics or activists as well? Um, yeah, so my parents were both activists. Um, my mother was a psychologist. Um, my father um, was really a blue collar worker. He worked for the Transit Authority, which is a subway system um, in New York City. He worked there for very many years. And um, prior to that, he worked for the post office for 15 years. So I think he worked for the city for about like, yeah, 45 years um, all up. Uh, so he definitely didn't have, you know, the education that he would have liked to have had, even though he was extremely intelligent. He, you know, he went to college for two years and then had to drop out and join the army um, because it was a, a paying job, you know, at that time. And uh, but whereas my mother did um, sort of go to Barnard, which was the female version of Columbia, you know, the sister college of um, Columbia, and she had a little bit more of that, um, you know, further study, um, uh, sort of master's in social work and that sort of thing. Um, so a little bit, yeah, she was a little bit more on the academic side, um, I would say, than my father, but they, they definitely worked together in terms of actually trying to fight against some of that institutionalized racism in our town. And they worked with a bunch of other parents to kind of like write a report about it and bring it to the school board and try to make sure that people were aware of, you know, even in this town, which had such high hopes and was really trying to um, embrace diversity. There were still so many um, issues that that remained. Um, so they really spoke a lot about that. We also had a, a police shooting of an unarmed uh, black man named Philip Pinnell when I was um, pretty young child as well. So it was really, you know, something that touched our town where we had the Reverend. Um, we had Jesse Jackson, we had, um, you know, all of these um, activists um, coming to to our town and, and bringing um, different protests and rallies. We had Reverend Al Sharpton and, you know, so it, it there was polarization um, around race, although there was also, there was a lot of diversity. There was also polarization, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
that's really interesting to hear because um, I should say that, well, you and I connected through a reading group, right, which you started for women of colour here, here in Oz, where you, I know, I think some others too, but you were largely responsible for selecting and curating articles and short publications for us to discuss. And I remember thinking, like, I was just so, it was very invigorating for me to be exposed to some of um, the, the discourses and uh, that you'd share or some like classics from, you know, your American civil rights legends like Toni Morrison. And um, and I remember kind of thinking that, gosh, you must have a real story, Robin, because you just you just have this exposure to 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 quite an eclectic range of um, uh, of material. Um, and I and I guess as well, probably just just generally having having an American amongst us um, here here in in Oz. Um, it was um, it was a really great experience. And so thank you for sharing for sharing that and for putting some pieces together for me too. Um, and I know, and then, so since then, like we, I think we connected offline because we both, um, I think I'd seen that you were involved in, in feminist AI and that you and I shared this keen interest in, in algorithmic bias. And I come at things from a sort of a legal perspective and we have a, a, a working knowledge of how the data science behind it all worked. But it seems like it's really something that you'd actively upskilled yourself on um, and I'm keen to understand more about how your sort of academic and um, policy and nonprofit work led you to technology and data science. Yeah, no, thank you for asking that. I mean, it's been such an interesting journey that I've been on personally, um, you know, through activism, um, you know, doing work in solidarity with Black Lives Matter, working with Black um, women artists and um, working at Rikers prison um, with inmates. You know, I've really just tried along the way to um, look at all the ways in which um, racism and oppression um, Im impacts, um, you know, my community and our communities um, in broader ways. And um, something that I've seen, you know, emerging more and more um, over the years is is how um, the role that algorithms play in deciding you know really important things for people um, in our community whether that's whether you're going to get a bank loan or whether sometimes you're going to be sentenced um, to prison or you know how long your sentence will be um, so the fact and also rating teachers and you know, so many things are are done through algorithmic processes now, and it's something that you know people have started to think about a little bit more. Maybe um, with COVID, sort of what data science is, and we were looking at all of these models. You know, early on during the pandemic, where it was like looking at the rate of spread of you know the COVID um, nineteen virus, or looking at you know the reproduction rate, things like that. Um, it started to get people excited about graphs and, you know, numbers again. Um, but it's something I've always been excited about. And, you know, I mentioned going back to high school, um, you know, being in that, that advanced math seminar for so many years and taking, you know, calculus and doing, um, you know, trigonometry and all of these things. I always loved math. And when I started, um, when I founded the nonprofit that I started in New York after Hurricane Sandy, you know, data, you know, really did play a big role in trying to explain to people, you know, the extent of the problem. 
trying to help people really look at, you yeah. know, why are certain communities underserved? You know, why are people already vulnerable when a storm hits that, you know, some people can recover quite quickly, whereas others, it takes years and years because that infrastructure is already not, is, is not there to begin with. So if you're already living in public housing, if you're already dependent on, um, you know, uh, food stamps and other forms of public assistance, um, you know, you just don't have a safety net and you don't necessarily have that extended family that can provide a safety net either because they might also be in a similarly precarious position. Um, and whereas like, if you're a homeowner and you have insurance and you know, you're able to eventually get that insurance to come through and to pay for, you know, all of the costs of the damage that you've lost from from that flooding, from that destruction, you know, you can rebuild. Um, whereas if, if you didn't have much, it, it's so much harder to recover after these types of disasters occur. And, you know, that's just one example. So, um, you know, working with um, food insecurity, I really had to gather the data on, you know, why, you know, why are people food insecure in this area? You know, what makes something an area of food desert? You know, what are the kind of, um, what are all the factors that contribute to that precarity or that vulnerability um, of some people in society? And I think that, you know, all of this is so important for people to understand. And, you know, it's come up again, you know, later when I've advised other nonprofits um, like the Davey Glover um, Center for Emerging Technology um, in Oakland, which I, um, you know, worked for for quite for some time. Um, you know, helping them to to um, do strategic development and, you know, really look at how they can raise more funds to support their amazing work. And again, was, you know, looking at the data and trying to explain to to those who are funders who are just not dealing with the same kinds of situations. They're not really in the community. So, you know, there can be those you know misconceptions of why people you know, are in the situations that they're in and not understanding that actually, you know, sometimes people who just have a lack of opportunity are really capable of so many amazing things and, you know, are our future leaders and, you know, could be being given these opportunities and instead they're sort of being penalized, you know, over and over again for just the fact of, um, you know, not having those opportunities to begin with. So it almost becomes, you know, like an embedded problem instead of, um, you know, a clear sign that, you know, a solution and support is, is um, warranted and needed there. Yeah, that's right. It, it essentially becomes this self-fulfilling pro prophecy because you, in, you enshrine and entrench that, uh, that bias in that technology, which will keep spitting out those same results. And then there's no kind of way out yeah absolutely um, absolutely and we see that here with um the biases that people have towards um indigenous people and the kind of rhetoric that people sort of repeat over and over again which is it's just so it's not it's not an accurate um it's not accurate but it's also not not a fair way to to perceive people to sort of say well you're in this position now so you must, uh, you know, deserve it somehow instead of saying, you know, let's look at the history. You're in this position because you've been dispossessed over and over again. 
and then you've been more vulnerable and it's been harder for you to fight back from that position of vulnerability. So um, I think, you know, that combination of, of uh, looking at the history, um, looking at the politics and looking at the way in which um, these the, the artificial intelligence and these algorithmic systems are impacting you know, people today and keeping people in poverty and keeping people from developing generational wealth, you know, we need to fight against that, I think. And we need to make sure that people do understand, you know, what, what those correlations are um, so that, um, you know, we can actually access real change and, um, and eliminate some of that stigma at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Like, so there's, I suppose there's, there's two pieces to that that that, that that comes to me and there's one in terms of the, of understanding how things work there's that education piece for and to be able to to effectively kind of communicate and help people understand you know why they find themselves in a certain situation and the role that you know auto, automated decision making has kind of driven them to this path in terms of like what are your thoughts or how do you then kind of communicate the the next steps the actions and um what to do with this information yeah i mean i think that it's about you know who's in the room i mean there's a lot of um sort of algorithmic auditing that is starting to arise now and you know there's there's a lot um to be said about looking into the ethics of um these uh, machine learning models and really trying to understand you know what are the features or the factors that are being looked at are they relevant are they fair things to look at are they just sort of yeah like reifying the same type of damage that already exists there or um within them is there there is there potential to kind of um not just kind of like label and relabel people in, in the same way based on um, the past rather than on the sort of um, potential for for how how things can change in the future. So I think um, something that I really think about is getting having more diversity in those rooms. You know, having more women and um, people of color. Um, you know, in technology as data scientists. As software engineers, you know, and as it, as executives in these companies, um, you know, as people who are working in recruiting, um, to really be able to change that um, that demographic of who is there at these companies making these decisions, and also changing the culture, right? So that when people are working in these places, they feel comfortable. You know, we can feel that we are not fragmented and that we are being able to bring our full selves to work and we're able to actually um, excel and contribute and, you know, ideate and invent. Um, and those are the kinds of, um, I think, quite liberatory changes that will um, have a ripple effect in our society, right? They will allow, um, you know, better, better algorithms to be um, built that are actually um, factoring the right considerations. Um, they will sort of root out some of the issues um, before they get scaled, um, you know, as far as what we've seen um, technologies, you know, can, you know, are capable of scaling very far. So, you know, there needs to be not just oversight, but there needs to be, um, real um, involvement of the parties that are going to be impacted 
by these, um, yeah, by these models. Yeah. Um, so look, what brought you to Australia? Yeah, so I, I originally came to Australia um, to study. So I went to university at the University of Melbourne and um, came to study history uh, many moons ago. Back to the question of my age. I mean, we won't say when, <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, it was something that was really interesting to me at the time to go and study abroad and live in another country. And um, it was, you know, pretty exciting for me. Um, having grown up, um, you know, in this one town my whole life, sort of knowing everyone uh, in the town my whole life, you know, not everyone in the town, but, you know, my friends and I, we, we just were together, you know, for all of those years. And um, you, you're, it's a, it was a sort of relatively small community. Um, compared to going and living, you know, abroad in another country. So it was definitely something that um, felt like a good opportunity for me to take um, when it became available. So once I started thinking about, you know, maybe going studying someplace else, I, I applied to some schools here, I got in and then I thought, well, maybe I should just, you know, go and, and try it out and see how it would feel. And so that's what originally got me out here. And then, you know, through that process, after having studied here, I, I applied for permanent residency and then it just became, you know, that much easier to come back and forth. And, you know, in this pandemic year, I found myself really unknowing, you know, that the pandemic was around the corner, um, you know, making making a move over here and then, you know, basically having to stay put because of, you know, all of the different border closures and, you know, things that have gone on. And it's been a really, you know, spent most of the year in lockdown <laughs> in Melbourne. Um, so it's been a really interesting year to have, you know, be here full time for the first time in a very long time. Um, but yeah, bit of a long winded story, but <laughs> that's more or less how I ended up here. Yeah, and so have you been able? So have you been largely kind of continuing then work with sort of one foot in either in either country um, in terms of uh, both you know kind of the the nonprofit and the the tech side or because what I and where I'm going with that is that it just it, it would feel to me like a very different um, environment both from a kind of a cultural perspective and where we are um, in terms of and you mentioned some of the issues that we have here with indigenous people and kind of race relations here and living in a colonial um, country compared to the US and secondly from that tech um, and data perspective like how have you like for me you know we hear a lot about really how how the technology industry is really very sort of young young white men um, and so even wherever you are in the world um, I think as a, a, a biracial woman in that industry you must have some stories there but hopefully it feels like another step on to be in technology in yeah. Australia. No that's, that's that very accurate. That's, no, that's very accurate and I have to say I've been you know really it's been a pretty, pretty tough and, you know, negative um, experience to both study, you know, to, to study data science here in a, in a class of all men other than me and 
to be sort of underestimated over and over again and be forced to be put in the position where it's, it's as though I have to prove myself over and over again, whereas everyone else is just treated as though they're welcome and they belong there on day one. And by everyone else, I mean the men. And um, it's been a similar situation in terms of applying. You know, at one point I was applying for jobs at tech companies here and it just was such a male dominated environment across the board, you know, every time and white male, you know, Australian white male. And, you know, you had a situation where there just would never be any women in senior leadership. There would definitely not be a woman of color. And, you know, there wouldn't even necessarily be a process or, you know, an HR um, kind of team in which, like, if you had a problem, you could go to someone, you could say, you know, I felt that this person was discriminating against me or this person made this comment or this person, you know, actually did this very, you know, harassing thing, you know, and there's just so many stories that I've heard from friends who are also working in this industry who are women who, you know, there's just not been a lot of recourse when, when things have happened. And, and sometimes it goes so far as to be really, really bad things. And um, it's like, who are you going to go to? There isn't a senior woman that you can go to. There isn't a real um, diversity, equity, inclusion um, initiative at, at many of these countries, at many of these companies. And, you know, even when it begins that people say that they're interested and that they want to, to see these changes and that, you know, there were a lot of, um, Unfortunately, less so in Australia, you know, even in the US, there were a lot of companies that said, you know, we stand with Black Lives Matter and we're making these pledges. And of course, a lot of companies felt fell short of what they were saying that they, you know, stood by, but at least they even said that they did stand with Black Lives Matter, whereas there were, were way fewer companies in Australia that did that. And then of those that did, they still really, it's not reflected um, in that internal culture. You're not seeing that diversity and you're not seeing protocols in place to ensure that um, inclusion and equity are occurring, you know, at within these workplaces. And, and unfortunately, um, just from so many of, you know, my friends' experiences in America as well, it's like the issue is, you know, people in tech like to say there's a pipeline problem and that, you know, there just aren't that many women with these skills or who are interested in, you know, working, um, you know, in analytics or as engineers, um, as data scientists. Um, it's not the case. It's not that there aren't women. There aren't, it's not that there aren't black women. It's not that there aren't, you know, people from many different um, backgrounds who want these jobs and want to do this work, it's that the culture can be so oppressive in these places that, you know, even if someone is able to get through the gate um, because they probably have that perfect resume and they went to, you know, two Ivy League schools and et cetera, um, 
and they might get in the door, you know, how are they going to feel once they get there? And, and often what they're, what they're experiencing, you know, is varying degrees of exclusion or outright um, bullying or, you know, worse. And so that's why retention is such an issue as well. So it's not just um, people coming in, it's people feeling comfortable to stay. And then it's promotion. It's like, why, why are people having these jobs at these companies and then not being promoted um, for years, whereas their counterparts who are white males are being promoted and, and in some cases white females. So it's just, um, there are a lot of issues across the board. And what, what really saddens me the most about it is that you know, not only does it stifle innovation, but it's just a dream deferred. It's so many brilliant people who are just not being given the opportunity to really, you know, do the work that they want to do, that they're capable of doing, that they're going to do really well. And that, you know, it's just becomes an issue where people need to protect themselves. And so it's like we end up having to exit these situations because, the culture is so toxic and, you know, there's such a lack of support and et cetera. And I don't, I don't want to see more people like myself and, you know, people of color, um, women, disabled people, you know, I don't want to see more people not, not um, be able to not, not succeed um, in, in these careers and, not have a voice, not have a seat at the table when, you know, we really, we really have something to say, you know, we have a story to tell and we have, we have a lot of skills that we can um, apply to this work. So, um, you know, I, I think that something, you know, on a large scale needs to, needs to shift and soon. Oh, I I hundred percent agree, and that's kind of what you know. That's why I started this this podcast, and I'm trying because I've had you have I've had so many conversations that go along these similar lines, and we're all kind of trying to to get to the root of uh, root of things, and 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 this so and it's just sort of you know these barriers at every level because actually something that was that I was reflecting on when you. Um, were just speaking is actually thinking about back to to when you were talking about your school days and how despite being in this really diverse environment when it came to those elite classes um and the further math and um it was actually becoming much more it became much more white um and so you um so i i feel like it's something you know almost that it, that needs to be addressed from sort of day dot at, at every stage and every entry point because it's about harnessing um, talent, it's about um, giving opportunities to, to get access and to, to education, then it's about um, uh, selecting talent into to universities and then the workforce, and then it's about the retaining and the promotion. And it's this kind of, it's such a, a, a maze to kind of, to, to, yeah, to, get, to get around. And it's to get about somewhere. investment as well, right? It's like, it's, it's just, why is it that yeah. it's so, you know, like less than 2% of VC funding is going to black women and uh, women across the board, it's very, very low still, you know, it's like, if, if the kind of confidence um, is not 
given and not seen in in women and you know people of color and you know people who have great ideas who are natural leaders who really you know come with um you know they come and they pitch a great idea a great company even a company with a lot of traction and they're not getting that funding you know and so it's also in business it's like why aren't there more you know women run and black women run and people of color run businesses it's also because of the way that the investment landscape works right so it's like how do we shift generational wealth how do we shift power and how do we shift um you know i mean it, it just ripples out to so many things um but yeah i think it's interesting what you mentioned about you know younger kids in schools and going back to when my parents and a group of other parents did that um the research on the institutionalized racism in in our school system what they really found was that it was this kind of systematic process where you know kids were going to see the school guidance counselors and saying oh i want to take this class and you know i think i can take this honors class and think it can do well and if they were women and if they were um children of color they were being discouraged you know they were being told you maybe you shouldn't take that class and you know you're not going to do well in that class and why don't you just take a class that you can get a good grade in you know so take an easier class it's going to be better for you right so they were being sort of systematically discouraged and this is how it works you know this is how people lose confidence in themselves this is how over time it's like you, you don't you set your goals lower because you're being told that you're not capable of doing more when in fact the opposite is often you know the case and so the opposite might be true but if you don't have that sort of um, mentality where you have that endless faith in yourself it's going to be hard to you know keep applying for jobs and not getting them and then saying well i'm going to just apply for another job and i'm going to get that one or it's going to be hard to apply to those Ivy League schools and maybe not get in and then say, well, you know what, I don't care. I'm going to apply again next year. I'm going to just keep applying until I get in. I'm going to make my materials better. I'm going to do what it takes. And I think so when you're, you know, being told that you're exceptional and that you're wonderful and everything you do is is perfect, it's like it just becomes easier for that to continue, for you to continue to get access to more and more opportunities. And when you're being told that you're not capable and you know you don't belong somewhere and you're not welcome it has a cumulative effect you know over time you, you lose confidence in yourself as well so it's like how do you fight a system in which there's so little representation and there's so little you know faith and confidence held by those you know hires those those powers that be um, it's like you almost need to have more confidence than, you know, your your competition or who may be yeah. those white males. But you, you, from where would you get this confidence when actually your confidence has been um, eroded, you know, for years and years by others, um, you know, lack of belief in you and their, and their spoken discouragement of yeah. you and your um, capacities. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Um, but Robin, we, can't, we can't end on this note. We've talked, about, we've talked about the problems with technology, but can technology help this situation? 
and address I think the so. situation. I think so. I think, you yeah. know, it, technology is, I personally think, can be, you know, a wonderful thing. It's a tool, right? It, it can be abused and it can be used well um, to actually help people. And yeah, that's why the, you know, the company that I'm building now. And so what we're working on is really trying to look at, you know, ways to measure um, consciousness. So ways to measure empathy and the ability to understand the experiences of others so that these workplaces become, you know, more welcoming, more compassionate, more um, equitable, you know, and so that people can really genuinely start to feel that they're being judged based on their character and not based on their external um, characteristics. So this is sort of my vision for the future is, um, a, you know, a, a more like a more just world, right? A fair world. But how do we get there? I think that we can mm -hmm. use technology. We can use these tools. We can use, um, you know, what's been so effective in social networks we can use what's been um you know what the what the what algorithms can do well you know which is sort of match and rank and measure to help us to actually quantify you know what are the factors that are going to um help us to really relate to each other better help us to understand each other help us to care more be more empathetic be kinder and, you know, it starts with the self. It starts with being um, self-reflective and saying, you know, what are my blind spots? What don't I understand? How can I understand this experience of others um, more? Because we all have something that we don't understand that we need to learn. And, you know, hopefully we're, we're curious people and we can come to life with a beginner's mind and we can be constantly um, evolving and going through this process um, as learners and teachers to, um, you know, expand our, our understanding of, of ourselves, of each other, and, you know, of what, what is truly possible. Yeah, um, that's, that is a much more uplifting note. And I, and I think, and, and I'm right there, but I, I think in, in sort of delving into the biases that affect ourselves personally, we're just, uh, for me personally, it really exposed the extent to which I have my, I'm built of my own biases and how much I still have left to learn about the world around me and the communities and how if, if I'm affected in one way, that means that other, other minority groups are affected in many other ways and, and they all need to play a part in order, in order to, to, to better itself. So, and, and I totally agree with you, I think technology and, and any, it, it, as far as, as bias can be um, entrenched in technology, sort of anti-discriminatory um, policy also can. So, um, so I wish you all the very best, and I'm really looking forward to keeping updated on how your new venture goes. Um, and also, thank you for bringing your your skills um, to Australia and trying to disrupt um, the industry over here. Um, I'm really excited to see how you progress. So Robin, oh, thank you so pleasure. much for taking the time um, to Thank chat. you so much for having me. It's, it's been wonderful. Thank you.